Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Bad sex sucks, and unfortunately, a lot of us are having it. I'm not talking about non-consensual stuff here. I'm talking about sex that you agree to have, but it's just not doing much for you. It isn't serving you or providing you with much pleasure. When we have bad sex, we tend to lose desire for it. That's normal. But this paradoxical thing often happens where even though the sex we're having isn't good, we feel like we ought to be wanting it, and that there's something wrong with us because our sexual desire is low. But if you're having sex that isn't worth having, this doesn't necessarily point to a problem with desire itself. It points to a problem with the way you're approaching sex. If you can make the shift from bad sex to good sex, odds are that your desire is going to come roaring back. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to discuss common things that make for bad sex and how you can make things better and bring back waning desire. I am joined by Dr. Kelly Kasperson, a urologist, sex educator, author, and podcaster whose mission is empowering women to live their best love lives. She combines education, humor, and candor in her book and podcast, both of which are titled, You Are Not Broken. Her work dismantles the myths women have learned about sex and normalizes healthy, enjoyable sex worth desiring. This is going to be an amazing conversation, so stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Anytime I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm usually super hot. So in order to get a good night's sleep, I have to strip down, crank the AC, and use the covers minimally. But that has all changed thanks to Cozy Earth. Their sheet set made from sustainable viscose from bamboo fabrics is softer than cotton and temperature regulating. It allows me to stay cool and comfortable all night long. Cozy Earth has been one of Oprah's favorites for years, and now it's one of my favorites. You can try their bedding for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, you can send it back for a full refund. Cozy Earth has provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code SEXANDPSYCHOLOGY. That's all one word. You can find the link and code in the show notes or visit CozyEarth.com to learn more. Enjoy and sleep well. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Kelly, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about your professional background. How did you get into the world of sex education and sexual medicine? What drew you to this field? Yeah, I actually had a life-changing patient change my life. 
I'm a urologist, so I practice general urology. I skew towards female. I, I cover a lot of female urology issues. And I had this patient right around seven years into my career. And if you look at like seven years into a career, you get kind of good at what you do. You might get kind of bored at what you do, right? And so I was kind of having this existential, like, am I just going to see recurrent UTIs for the rest of my life situation? And she came in and we'd already been pretty bonded. I'd helped her with some cancer in her past. And she was crying in my office wonderful marriage, but a sexless marriage. And she was feeling very bad about it, both for her partner and for herself. And as I grabbed a box of Kleenex to give it to her, lightning struck my brain. And what I was taught in urology was women are difficult. You don't want to deal with women. Actually, you should do a fellowship so you don't have to deal with women. And we are the experts of the penis and Viagra. And lightning struck my brain. And I said, well, who's taking care of the people who are supposed to be sleeping with the people we're giving Viagra to. And are all of these things that I was taught truths, or do we actually know something, right? The other, the other myth was that the gynecologists were taking care of all of this, so no, no, no other doctor needed to take care of it. And so I started reading all the books and going to the conferences, and it, it turns out we actually know a lot about female desire, arousal, orgasm, brains, but it's not how women are being taught. Of course, our sex education is horrific in this country and in a lot of the world. And then Hollywood portrays what sex should be for women in a very heteronormative, male-prioritized viewpoint. So women simply aren't getting the education that is out there. And so once I learned all that, you know, I talked to the next woman and she's like, well, I've never had an orgasm with penis and vagina sex. And I'm like, well, you're not broken. That's, that's the way your body is. Right? Most vaginas don't have orgasms by putting something in it. And, you know, oh, I don't have spontaneous desire. That's the next woman. I don't have spontaneous desire for sex. And I'm like, well, you're not broken. Most people in long-term relationships don't have spontaneous desire for sex. So I just started saying, you're not broken, you're not broken, because it turns out a little bit of education goes a long way in normalizing people's lived experiences. This little voice in my head then was like, you got to talk, you got to talk. I, you know, you can only see so many people in your town where you're a doctor, right? And so that's where the podcast was born about two and a half years ago now, and then came out with the book, again, titled, You Are Not Broken, Stop Shoulding All Over Your Sex Life. Because it's all the shoulds, right? I should want it all the time. I should have an orgasm by putting something in my vagina. I should have the same sex drive as my partner does. You're just carrying around a backpack of bricks. You know, you got to get those bricks off. Your life's going to be a lot lighter. So that that's my story. I wasn't born into it. I, it, I truly started questioning what I had been taught or what I hadn't been taught. Thank you for sharing that. And I love everything about that story. <laughs> and, you know, that ability to recognize that what you were taught was wrong. And there's a better way to approach this. And I hope that that inspires other people in urology and in other fields of medicine to prioritize the importance of understanding and recognizing sexual health and be able to answer some of these questions that people have, or at least refer them to the right person who can help them get the help that they really need. So let's talk about bad sex. You have a chapter on this subject in your new book, and it starts with an analogy that I think is really great. You say that you have this love for Haagen-Dazs mint chocolate chip ice cream, but you would never have the desire to eat it if it was melted. So even though the same flavor profile is present in melted ice cream, it's just not good enough to want, no matter how you serve it. And it's really the same thing with sex. You might really like sex, but if you're not getting it in a way that makes it pleasurable, you're not going to want it. 
However, there seems to be this idea out there that when women lose desire for sex, it signifies a problem with the individual, you know, that they were having great sex and suddenly they don't want it anymore. So there's something wrong with them. But your theory is that a lot of these women who have lost desire are just having bad sex. So it's only natural that they'd stop wanting it. So can you speak a little bit about this idea in your experience To what extent is lack of interest in sex usually a clinical problem with desire versus a problem with bad sex? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a wonderful question. I would love for people to do some research on this. (laughs) And the reason that it was like this aha for me is I started going, you know, learning as much as I could about desire and really low desires. The number one thing, what number one sexual problem that women seek out help for, right? It's a desire. And I started learning more about it. I was actually talking to a worldwide expert on this. And I said, yeah, but shouldn't we be making sure that women are having good sex? And, and he was like, well, of course they're having good sex. It's just that they don't have desire. And it was his, of course they're having good sex, where I was like, you're coming at this probably from a very male perspective of like, you're probably having good sex every time you have sex. These women aren't, right? And is low desire just a consequence of the melted ice cream instead of a primary problem of sex is mind-blowing and awesome. I don't desire it. I'd say that's much more rare. So I'd say bad sex, if, you know, off the cuff, I'd break down into three different categories. Number one is painful sex. Women will come to me and they'll say, I have two problems. I have low desire and I have pain with sex. I always take away, you know, it's nice to when you can take away problems for people. It's like, no, 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 you have one problem. You have pain with sex. We don't desire painful things. That's neuroscience, right? Like I'm never going to put my hand on a hot stove. So we avoid painful scenarios. So certainly if the sex is painful, uncomfortable, anything like that, you're not going to desire it. That's bad sex. And I I was just doing a podcast with somebody. We were talking about this because it's almost not a myth, but almost a truism that women are told the first time they have sex, it will be painful. And I think that comes from our incredible lack of sex education, right? We don't talk about lubrication. We don't talk about arousal. We don't talk about what we need to do to prep her pelvis for penetration. We give her none of that information and we just tell her it's going to be painful. Like it's a given instead of, well, that's what's going to happen if you're not prepped properly for it and don't go slow and prioritize your pleasure, which is very interesting. So I think that's one of the bad sex buckets. Um, the other one is not prioritizing her pleasure, right? If she's having sex for her partner, and I see this a lot, I see this a lot, and I'm stereotyping, but in heterosexual long-term relationships, but I think it'd be any anybody who's partnered with anybody, if one person wants it more and they're just having it for that person, it's not about you. And when it's not about you, we don't prioritize your pleasure. It doesn't really matter if you have pleasure because you're just doing it because your partner needs it. It's an epidemic, and I don't see it researched a lot. This almost like, I don't want it, but it's not It's not like coercion, but it's not a hell yes. It's this very gray, cons- not quite consensual, pleasurable sex that I think is happening everywhere. And I, I've looked for the research. I, I don't see a lot. I see a little bit in college students that's research, but not a lot in you know your, your middle-aged long-term relationship. I'm having sex. Some people will call it pity sex, right? But certainly I'd, I'd call that bad sex. And then the third one, which people don't think about, is just a repetitive, boring, so it's you know pizza for dinner every single night. A lot of people don't want to have pizza for dinner every single night. And then they're like, well, I really don't desire pizza. It's like, yeah, you're just having pizza for dinner every single night versus if your dinner was like varied and interesting and you got to choose and maybe you get to go out sometimes and you're like, yeah, I'd like dinner. 
right? So it's it's almost just repetitive. And and couples get into that. You know, they get into that sexual script. They get what's easy. They know what works well for one person. So they kind of get into the script of sex, not realizing that's really might be really bad sex for one person. So bad sex can take a lot of different forms. And I appreciate everything you said and the way you just sort of broke that down into those different categories. And as you were talking about the painful sex thing, it was making me think too about how, for example, a lot of gay men kind of learn that anal sex is going to be painful or that it's supposed to be painful. And so I think a lot of them are kind of approaching it with that same mindset, you know, going in. If you expect it to be painful, probably going to be painful, but you need to know how to prepare and how to make sex pleasurable. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, sex ed is pretty shitty and we don't do a very good job of teaching people how to have pleasurable sex of any kind. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to bad sex, you know, one of the categories centers around people kind of having sex because they feel like they should do it. They're supposed to do it. Maybe because their partner has a higher sex drive than them. And so they feel like they're supposed to keep up in some way, or they have that sort of obligatory sex or maybe an anniversary or Valentine's Day or whatever is coming up. And they feel like, you know, sex is an obligation I have to do for my relationship or something else you described in the book is this idea of checklist sex where, you know, sex just becomes another chore around the house. So why is it a bad idea to have sex because you think it's something you should do instead of something you really want to do. Yeah. A lot of it's mindset, right? Number one, I think mindset of like, if it's for you, there's kind of an inherent justification of it being pleasurable instead of like just getting it over with, right? Number one, it's just for that person, your spouse, and then you're tired anyway. So you put it right before bed. So you're already exhausted. Like to me, like it's as a setup for you not enjoying sex. And then you add the extra weight of like now thinking you're the problem because you have the low desire for this thing that you do when you're exhausted at the end of the day for your spouse or for your significant other. And to me, it's like to prioritize it as important for you and them. And I think the way people are socialized, especially the, the way women are socialized in our society of, you know, what do we call women who like sex in our society? We actually call them bad names. So we are socialized to not, don't be the bad name, but then now there's a problem with us because we don't want sex. So it's really this double-edged sword. But I think a lot of relationships, especially heterosexual or just disparate mismatched sex drive, which again is normal, two people, one house, different desires for pizza and beer and coffee and sex, like just to normalize two different people. But there's almost this like, male default of like the higher sex drive is the one to which you should be compared. But again, the double-edged sword of if you have a female who has a higher sex drive than the male, she's still the problem, right? We're really comparing her to where the male standard is. Instead of thinking of it as a relationship, what works for the relationship? How much sex works for the relationship instead of how much sex works for this one person's level of desire? And then let's circle around that for the eternity of of our relationship. So many important points there. And if you find yourself going into sex frequently, saying to yourself, all right, let's get this over with, that's a bad sign, right? That is not the kind of sex that you deserve. And you should really rethink your approach to sex and whether this relationship and the way you're having sex is really meeting your needs and what you can do differently about that. Now, another kind of sex that you talk about that 
is a form of bad sex in your book, is when sex becomes this bartering chip in a relationship where either you withhold sex or you offer sex as a way of trying to change your partner's behavior. So for example, you talked about a story where this woman said that her husband would give her a point every time they had sex so that she could redeem it for other things. Like, what the fuck is that? You know, it's like you're turning sex into this crappy carnival game at the state fair where you collect tickets and you can later redeem it for some poorly stitched stuff animal. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah, or a nice pair of shoes. Yeah. So <laughs> why is it a bad idea to use sex as a bargaining chip, whether it's withholding sex or, you know, trying to use sex to reward your partner in some way? Yeah. I mean, and again, I I always chalk this up to like the sex education is just so bad, right? Of like how incredibly wonderful sex can be, how incredibly intimate and vulnerable in a good way and pleasurable and, you know, time with your partner. Sex can be so amazing. But if we don't ever get taught that, we never get taught what feels good for you. How do you communicate that? How do you say, I want to have equal pleasure to you when we have sex together? We never get taught that. And so we, it like ends up going down these like horrific carnival rides of like doom and despair of like, it's easy for us to say, well, women should just have the sex they want, right? But she never figured that out in the first place. Sex for her was always putting a penis in her vagina in a heterosexual relationship. And we know that doesn't lead to orgasm in 70% of women. This is always kind of my challenge of like when, you know, we as the experts say like, a woman should really have sex that's for her, realizing she may have never, ever had that before in her life. And to almost honor like where these people are coming from, because we've done such a poor job of saying it was ever for you. And now we're like, it should be for about you. And they're like, what? I have to undo like 30 years of sex here. So it's, it's a very big deal. But I mean, I see these women, they come into my office and, you know, let's say they're 50, the kids are out of the house, they were feeling pretty bad. Maybe they got on hormones, they started exercising, they started prioritizing their orgasms. They come in and they're like, what else is there? This is amazing. I've got the rest of my life. Like you see that start of a sexually confident woman and it's energy like you've never seen. It is so cool. And so like only to share with your listeners, like this is totally possible. We're just kind of saying, have you ever thought that sex could be for you? Because I guarantee you a lot of women have never even thought that it could be for her. Yeah, I think that's so true. And yes, it is so beautiful to see someone who becomes sexually confident and has that sexual awakening and can take control of their pleasure and their sexual health and all of these things at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the joy that shines through their face. It's like so exciting to be around. Like bottle that, you'll solve the energy crisis. Yes. And you know, when somebody is sexually confident, that can spill over into other aspects of their life. Like they just carry themselves differently. And so, you know, it can be one of the keys to just a more rewarding, fulfilling, happy life in general. Yeah. There's there's data on that too. You know, like confident in the bedroom is confident in the boardroom of like, you know what's a yes, you know what's a no, you know how to ask for what you want. There's so many tools in discovering you know, your own agency and sex that easily spill into non-sexual areas of your life. Absolutely. If you needed another reason, right? (laughs) So we've talked a lot about bad sex and the different forms it can take. Let's talk about good sex now. So how do you define good sex? Well, I think it can be very individualized for the person, right? I bet if you polled 
you know, 100 people, you get 100 different answers. But really feeling like it was for you and if it was partnered, right? Because good, good sex can be alone. You know, here, here we are overgeneralizing, saying it's partnered. But good sex can be alone. But what, when it's partnered, feeling like you were seen, feeling like you were cared for, feeling like you were desired, feeling like you were, were an equal, if that's what you wanted to do. So I'd say there's some universal truths in what good sex is. Yeah, and I totally agree that it is highly subjective because different people might get different things out of sex. That's something that might also change at different stages of the lifespan. You know, so what made for good sex when you were a horny teenager might be very different from when you're in, say, your 40s and 50s, you know. So there's a lot of variability in this over time, but it's ultimately about getting what you want and what you need out of sex at that particular point in life and in that particular relationship circumstance. And you're right, you can have good sex by yourself. You can have it with one other partner. You can have it with multiple other partners, right? So again, it looks different for different people. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's important to highlight when we're talking about good sex that we're not necessarily talking about perfect sex because striving for perfect sex can be problematic too because sex is rarely perfect. It can be a little bit messy. Things might not go according to your plan and your body might not do exactly what you want it to do at the exact right time. And this is why I think the concept of good enough sex is so great because it acknowledges that our sexual experiences can and will vary and that perfection isn't the goal. So can you speak a little bit about this idea of good enough sex? Yeah, I think it's Barry McCarthy who wrote this amazing, amazing book. It is a it's rekindling desire. He talks about good enough sex and it's so important for people to hear this. You know, I kind of akin it to like a sports, playing a sport, right? Of like, let's say you play basketball. We'll just pick something. If you're only happy or is only good when it was a perfect, flawless game, it's rarely that, right? And it's like just playing the game is what's enjoyable, not, you know, shooting perfectly, landing everything perfectly, all that stuff. And it's also very forgiving for our bodies. Like, Sometimes penises don't work. Sometimes vulvas don't get as wet. Sometimes orgasms don't happen. And it's almost that pressuring, you know, and there's good research on this of like pressuring your partner to have an orgasm makes the orgasm more elusive, right? So pressuring for an endpoint or pressuring for a performance goal actually adds cortisol and orgasm don't mix. And so it's that pressure to have it go a certain way. It's almost, you know, like being able to play a piece of music of like, you you don't know where it's going, but it's, it's a beautiful thing to listen to. Your description of that resonates with me a lot. You know, you can apply this model to anything, you know, I can apply it to podcasting and say, you know, my approach with this has to be that it needs to be good enough. Like podcast recordings are rarely perfect. You know, there's always some technological issue or something else that happens stumbles, other things that go on behind the scenes that the listener never ends up hearing. You know, there's a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor, but you can't expect perfection because you'll just never get there. And it would just take me forever to produce a single episode if I was just going for perfection every time. And it's really the same mindset you need to have when it comes to sex, when it comes to work. It's the only way that you're going to get that work-life balance that we all want and are looking for. Because if we're always striving for perfection and everything, it becomes so mentally and emotionally taxing. You know, at some point you have to say, this is good enough for me. And so that's a, 
I think, a healthy way, a healthy mindset for approaching sex and pretty much everything else in life. Yeah. And and I think, you know, again, it's like, wouldn't it be awesome if sex ed included like good enough sex? I truly believe like there's sex ed's usually taught junior high, high school, right? Of like, once you turn 30, 35, there should be like a new adult sex ed. That's like, okay, now you've had an experience of being an adult. Now you've had an experience of actually being in a relationship. How about you learn the concept of good enough sex now? (laughs) You know, because I'm like, I don't know when you're like 15, if that's the right age to learn about good enough sex. But man, it's super useful when you get older. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about as a teenager, just having a partner was good enough when it came to sex because, you know, your body's just in this heightened state of arousal, like perpetually, and everything is kind of easy. I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but it's just the way your body works when you have those raging hormones is different from how your body operates a little bit later on when you're in different developmental periods. So another way to think about good enough sex is to think, okay, what are my non-negotiable things? Like the things that I absolutely have to have for it to be good enough sex. And then what are the extra things that would just make it even better? You know, the icing on the cake, you know? So these are the things that are optional. They don't have to happen every time, but if they do happen, great. That just makes it even better. So it's sort of just getting to that place of I'm getting the essentials and everything else that happens is just a fantastic bonus. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so much kindness for you and your partner too to not need it to be perfect, right? Especially like after you have a baby or maybe there's some erectile dysfunction issues or after menopause, like our bodies continue to change and evolve and age. And it's just such a more loving way to keep sexuality within your life of knowing that it's not going to be perfect every single time. And it's just, again, playing the game, being together, connecting, experiencing your body for where it is today is such a a more beautiful thing. But again, look at what Hollywood tells us. Look at what porn tells us. Like that's all curated, edited, the 50th take, but we're watching perfection. So of course, how easily it is for us to take that into the bedroom. Yes. So how do we make the transition from bad sex a good sex. Now, the answer is obviously multifaceted. It's complex. But let's talk about where you even begin with this. So let's say you've had the realization that you're not wanting sex because it just hasn't been good enough to want for you. So where do you begin in terms of changing this? Does this start by working on yourself first? Do you start by talking to your partner about it? What's your advice for sort of how to begin this journey from bad sex to good sex? Yeah. Well, I, first I want to talk about what, what humans usually do, right? And then be like, well, maybe we should start somewhere else. But what we usually do is we want quick fixes and we want to change other people. So that means we go on the internet, we purchase something, and then we tell our partner they're doing something wrong. That's just the way our brains work. You know, we want quick fixes and we'd like to change other people because then we don't have to do anything on ourselves. But what I would suggest is to start with just an awareness of where you are with things. Just be like, okay, what does sex mean to me right now? Right? How do I feel about sex right now? Just to kind of understand the water that you're swimming in. And then to be like, well, somebody said that sex can be like, amazing and orgasmic and close to God in in your awareness of your body, like all these things of like, I've heard sex could be like this. And just realize like sex is different things to different people. I always start with just an awareness of where you are. So number two, I think would just be education of understanding your body, right? Like what feels good to me? What doesn't feel good? And a lot of women, you know, if you were to ask again, let's say it doesn't have to be a woman, anybody who's having bad sex, 
and be like, what would great sex be? And you're like, I have no idea. I've never had it. Like, you know, you're like, what would walking on the moon be like? I have no idea. I've never done it. Right. So instead you can say, well, what's not good for you? And a lot of people can identify like, I feel numb. I feel disconnected from my body. I feel like they're just putting something in, in me and I don't feel connected. So it's pretty easy for somebody to describe what's not pleasurable. So I think you usually start there. Because saying, well, what would feel good is it's like a moon landing for them. They don't know. So you can almost reverse engineer it then and be like, okay, what is being connected to your own body feel like? What feels good to you? What works? And a lot of this, again, for people who are socialized as women, masturbation is very bad. The words for our body parts are banned on Instagram, right? Like I just got kicked off of a reel because I said vagina. So it's like our body parts are not our own and saying like they're worthy of touch and exploring. It's okay to touch yourself. And so even that's kind of a leap for a lot of people. But so I'd say starting there, then bring in your partner and you can be like, I was listening to this podcast and it turns out that 70% of women don't have an orgasm by putting something in their vagina. That was mind blowing to me. You can just start like sharing things of what you've learned to engage your partner instead of being like, you don't give me an orgasm. You know, like, it's more like, let's share the knowledge. I would love to see if I could have as many orgasms as you. I would love to see if I could love sex as much as you. I have no idea how to do that. Can you help me? And almost like engage and bring them in. I think that's all well said and fantastic advice. And unlike social media, you can say vagina, vulva, clitoris as much as you want on my podcast. That's what's so great about podcasts. Exactly. (laughs) No fucking filters. We can say whatever we want. So, you know, that is one of the limitations of trying to get your sex ed from social media because a lot of sex educators kind of have to do sex ed in disguise. And it's kind of this regressive thing where, you know, we finally got to the point where we could say words like clitoris and vulva. And then we have these social media companies saying, no, that's dirty. That's bad. You can't do that. And censorship is just insane. So you have to know where to go to find the right information. And I think that's where podcasts and, you know, books like the ones that you and I've written can be really helpful augments to helping people to better understand themselves. So I know we're running short on time here, but I have one more question for you about this good sex, bad sex thing. So as both a physician and a sex educator, can you give us your top two or three tips on how to improve the sex that you're having? And I'm especially curious if you have any tips that you think just aren't discussed often enough or that might not be intuitive. I mean, we always hear the importance of communication, for example, but good sex, great sex is about so much more than that. So what are some of your other favorite tips for having really good sex or good enough sex? Yeah, I'll I'll start with one that I don't see a lot, but I think can be very helpful is start on your own for about five to 10 minutes. Like, again, I, I wouldn't say that that's in the top 10 for a lot of people, but it's like, especially if you're like the average normal human who's like busy job, cortisol, checklist to like you're in your sympathetic nervous system and it's go, go, go. And now your partner might be like, want to have sex? And you're like, no, right? Like I'm in the sympathetic cortisol. You're just going to be a to-do list for me. And like, you know what? Yeah. Sex, our, our relationship being sexual is important to me, but I need like five to 10 minutes by myself, whether that's yoga, a bath, you and a vibrator, you and massage oil, just getting into your body and relaxing and working on that mindfulness centering in the present moment, I think can be huge for you enjoying sex because it's not, we're not light switches. 
you know, and we're like, okay, kids are in bed, let's have sex. And they're like, well, I didn't enjoy it. And it's like your body and mind weren't tuned in. So I'd say like spend some five to 10 minutes tuning into your own is a, a top tip. Don't have sex right before bed. Like we, we get older, we're tired. We just, we're now we're competing with something like we will die if we don't get proper sleep. We won't die if we don't have sex. Eventually our species may, but I doubt it. But like, you know, with competing with something that like literally it's, it shortens your life if you don't have sleep, you know, moving, prioritizing sex during your kid's nap time or when your kids are in school or before brunch or before you go out to dinner. Dr. Ruth always said, have sex before you go out to dinner. I think she was onto something. <laughs> so yeah, it's just paying attention to like not being totally exhausted. Here's the other thing that I think people don't learn how to do is like, what does sex mean to you? And what does sex mean to your partner? Because we always assume other people think just like us, right? And their reason for having sex might be very different than your reason. And just understanding that about yourself and your partner might open up like a very interesting conversation. Because there's right two different people, the people who like need to be connected before they have sex and the people who have sex to be connected. And they might, might both be living in the same house and not even know it. I think that's all fantastic advice. And I appreciate you bringing up these things that, you know, aren't the primary go-to tips that you hear all the time. And I really like the piece about, you know, how solo sex, solo play can be part of partnered sex. It can be a warm-up or lead into it. And, you know, sometimes solo play comes afterwards, right? Because some people, when they have sex that is really good, that just revs up their sex drive and they want it more. And so they will masturbate after sex as well and maybe have more orgasms. And, you know, there are some people who look at that as something to be threatened by, like, oh, the sex wasn't good enough. But, you know, that can actually be a sign that the sex was really fucking good. So think about ways that you can incorporate solo play into partnered sex and, you know, change your mindset when it comes to how you think about these things. Totally. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Kelly. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm on Instagram at Kelly Casperson MD, and my podcast is You Are Not Broken. Amazon carries the book, You're Not Broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Kelly's book, You Are Not Broken. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 